This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Page Podcast. Being that tonight begins the month of Menachem Av, and we're a little over a week away from Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, where we remember the destruction of both our temples, our national framework, and many other calamities that befell us throughout history, I thought it appropriate to share a class I once taught on the different personalities involved in leading the zealot movement against the Roman Empire. From the 17th of Tammuz to the 9th of Av, we like to tell ourselves the story of our great revolt against the Romans, and a lot of the details of that story uh, have been forgotten over the centuries. Uh, so I think it's important we really familiarize ourselves with the major characters, as well as their thoughts and deeds, to figure out for ourselves the relevancy of the zealot ideological tendency in Israeli society and the broader Jewish world today. As always, uh, listeners should know that if you want to support the show or the work that we do here at the Vision Movement, you can go to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. Uh, this show is completely listener funded. We don't want that to change. So your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage, 8-1. So in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, uh, from different angles, you know, the zealot movement. And uh, last week we spoke about like Pinchas Eliyahu and his connection, either as an inspirational figure to the zealot movement or as a actual participant, perhaps. Like, we don't know. Like, historically, there's no evidence we have. Uh, we're told that Eliyahu Navi teaches Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai the, what we know to be the Zohar Kadosh in the cave. But uh, we don't know for sure if Eliyahu was a participant in the war against Rome. But we know that uh, the whole Kanai movement was largely based on the figure of Pinchas that Pinchas was like the inspirational figure, and that he was a major figure in like the kind of, when we speak about the major uh, heroes uh, of our history, in the Second Temple period, Pinchas was considered one of the major heroes of Jewish history. Uh, so now I thought tonight we'd talk a little bit more about some of the personalities uh, relevant to the revolt. There, there are a lot of interesting uh, rebel leaders who we never le learn about, who are like completely invisible to Jewish history, uh, which is a bit of an injustice. Maybe it's worth talking about why they're written out of history. You know, someone asked me recently, well, how come the Maccabim, who essentially did the same thing, uh, are remembered as heroes? Like we remember the Maccabees and Hanukkah every year as heroes. And the short answer is because they won. Because you know? they won. Had uh, had the Zealot movement won and defeated the Romans and freed our country, then we'd probably remember them much more positively. But there was an interest, you know, after they lost, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there was a debate within the Roman Empire. Do we punish the Jews for this war? The Jews everywhere throughout the empire, not just in Judea. And uh, Josephus, who was actually chronicling the history 
of the war. Like we know most of what we know about this time period from Josephus, which is problematic, but it's what it is. He becomes. It, it it's problematic it's because, because he's no, because he's a character in the story, and he's a very biased character. He's a. He, he's he himself is a Kohen. Uh, his name is Yosef ben Matityahu. He's one of the commanders of the rebel army that set up after the Romans are driven from Jerusalem in 66. Uh, he becomes a commander in the north, in the Galil. No, but he, but he betrayed the revolution and joined the Romans. And he's the major source we have for this war, for the details of the war. First of all, he saw himself not only as like uh, what we today call Dati, like he was like a loyal Jew, loyal to Torah, loyal to Hashem in his own mind, but also believed that Hashem was on the side of the Romans. And also believed himself to be a Navi. But he ultimately betrays the revolution and joins the Romans. So he writes the story as, it, you know, it depends where. You have to be able to see through his biases. In some places, you know, he writes the story um, as if the freedom fighters had kind of just acted unilaterally against the will of the population, forced the population into a conflict with Rome, and, uh, and brought destruction upon Judea. And that's his position. That's what he keeps arguing, you know, when, when Jerusalem is under siege, and the Romans are outside and the rebels are inside, he's in charge of, you know, interrogating the prisoners, because he speaks their language, he understands the culture, he'll be able to see through lies easier, and he's also in charge of the propaganda to be able to kind of demoralize the people inside. Uh, and he sees himself as kind of like a Yirmiyahu figure. You have to remember that Yirmiyahu, in the, uh, in, in, during the last days of the kingdom of Judah, Yirmiyahu's position was don't fight the Babylonians, don't revolt, Accept their rule. And that's how we'll save the kingdom of Judah. That was his nevoah. Right? That was, and, and Yirmiyahu is often used as a source in order to justify the position of surrender. Now, we learn that when a Navi tells us to break the Torah, to violate halacha, once we listen. The problem emerges when we're told that we're supposed to change halacha, like in a drastically. Not, we're not talking about the evolution of halacha through the system, but we're talking about a Navi coming and saying, no, like from now on, we uh, drive on cars on Shabbat. Right? You don't listen to such a Navi. So Yirmiyahu, at a time, in the time of Tzitkiyahu, when we wanted to revolt against the Babylonians, Yirmiyahu saw that Hashem had, had been essentially using the Babylonians to correct us. And uh, if we revolt against them, we're going to lose the kingdom. We'll destroy the Beit HaMikdash and the kingdom and we'll go into exile. And, but we understood the halacha to be that we're commanded to fight for our land. We don't accept foreign rule. Yet... Yirmiyahu was coming with a message to temporarily change the law, saying that now there's a nevuah where this time we have to surrender. The problem is people came and used Yirmiyahu later as a source. So later on, if you fast forward to the time of the Maccabim, you know, the, the soldiers of the Maccabee army were made up of two major groups. 
There was like the Maccabean faction, like the sons of Matityahu and their supporters. We'll call them the Maccabees for lack of a better term. And there's also another group called the Hasidim. The Hasidim make up the majority of the Hasmonean forces. Now, the difference between them were that they all pretty much started fighting at the same time. And they were unified under the leadership of first Matityahu and then Yuda. But in their minds, they had a different uh, motivation. The Hasidim were fighting for what we'll call today religious freedom. The right to live as Jews in our land without having uh, to be forced to worship idols, um, without, having to, uh, w- w- without having anybody prevent us from celebrating Shabbat or Rosh Chodesh or doing Brit Milah, right? Like, we're learning Torah. Like, we didn't want external coercion. We wanted to be able to live according to our culture, according to our value system, according to our way of life in our land. That's what motivated the Hasidim to fight. The Maccabim agreed with that and maybe even started fighting for those reasons as well, initially. But very quickly, they took the position that this is not just a fight for religious autonomy, for cultural autonomy. This is a fight for political independence. We're fighting to free our land from foreign rule. And at a certain point, there, after the Battle of um, Bet Zechariah, there was a split. And for the most part, the Hasidim wanted to accept Greek rule, so long as we can live according to our own culture and values. And the Maccabim wanted to keep fighting until our land is free. So the Hasidim, if you kind of follow the evolution of these movements, the Hasidim become the Pharisee movement and the Maccabim become the Zealot movement, you know, once the Romans are, are dominating our country. Now, what's interesting is at the height of the Machloket, prior to the Battle of Nicanor, which is one of the famous battles of Yudah Maccabee, where his forces were depleted because the Hasidim were not participating, and we can imagine that the Hasidim were using Yirmiyahu as a source for their position that we can accept foreign rule. Just like Yirmiyahu said to accept Babylonian rule, we could accept Syrian Greek rule. So the night before his battle with uh, Nicanor, Yuda Maccabee has a dream. And in this dream, he um, meets, I think it was Shimon HaTzadik, who was his great-great-great-grandfather. And he introduces him to a second person wearing a hood, and that's Yirmiyahu. Like Yirmiyahu actually comes to Yudah in a dream. And he hands Yudah a golden sword. Let's take this, go fight. And meaning, the message is clear. Don't let them use me as a source. We're commanded in every generation to fight to free our homeland from foreign rule. You're not allowed to accept foreign rule over the land of Israel. And if people are claiming otherwise and using Yirmiyahu as a source for their position... Then Yirmiyahu has to come and visit Yudah Maccabee in a dream and say, don't listen to them, here's a golden sword, take it and fight. And he did, and he won. And we had a holiday um, for a long time called Yom Nikanor on the 13th of Adar. 
Now, in the time of the Roman occupation, when we're revolting, it's not that the Pharisees, just like the Hasidim, it's not that they didn't believe we should be free. They knew the ideal is we should be free. The question is, how obligated are we to do it, really? Like, how obligated are we to fight against what kind of odds? How far are we supposed to be willing to go in order to free our land? How important is it, really? How much are we supposed to be willing to put on the line for it? That was a real machloket. The machloket wasn't, should we or shouldn't we? Like, do we have a mitzvah or not? And so the Pharisee position was a easy position to maintain because it's like yeah okay we want to be free but not necessarily now or you know or we don't have to under these conditions like you know so for example you have uh, even a split in like the rabbinic leadership the Nasi was Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel and the Azbetin was Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai now, in the beginning, it appears that both supported the revolt. But at a certain point, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai withdraws his support. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel is ultimately executed by the Romans. His son, uh, Rabban Gamliel II, ends up writing what we call the Amidah, the Shmona Esrei. He becomes the first Nasi, the first leader of Am Yisrael, appointed after the destruction of the Second Temple in Yavna. And the exercise we have that we're meant to do three times a day in order to remind our conscious selves what our collective soul wants and what we're supposed to be fighting to achieve in history, that's authored by Rabban Gamliel II, uh, obviously a student of his father's. Now, Rabban Gamliel was... Uh, friends with a man in the north named uh, Yochanan Migush Chalav or Yochanan Ben Levi. He was uh, a wealthy Galilean, you know, uh, who had made his fortune, I think, selling oil, like uh, Israeli oil to diaspora Jews. And he becomes Josephus' main rival in the north. Like, they become like enemies in the north. So Josephus is very unkind to Yochanan in his writing. But ultimately, Yochanan, after the fall of the north, will come with, uh, you know, a few, of his, a few thousand of his followers to Jerusalem and essentially take over leadership of the freedom movement in Jerusalem. At that time, the, uh, the Zealot movement in Jerusalem, not just the Zealot movement, but the Zealot party. You have to remember, within the Zealot movement, there's different factions, there's different like militias. One of them is actually called the Zealots, the Kanaim. Another one is called the Sikari. Now, the Sikari is, like, they're famous for the mass suicide at Masada. Like, that's, like, their main uh, claim to fame in history. But the Sikari were, like, the purists. They're led by, first of all, they, they're led by the dynasty, they're led by the family of Rabbi Yudah Glili. Rabbi Yudah Glili is actually the founder of what we call the Zealot movement. Rabbi Yudah Glili and uh, Tzadok Perushi. Those are the two founders of the Zealot movement um, in the very beginning of the first century. 
um, they agitate against uh, Roman census. The Romans were trying to, to conduct a census to figure out the population, taxes, etc. And they encourage people not to participate. Um, ultimately, um, his family becomes like the hardcore of this movement. And eventually their group is called the Sikari. His son or grandson, there's different opinions, Menachem, is the leader of the Sikari in the year 66 when they conquer Masada and when the revolt breaks out in Jerusalem. His men thought he was the Mashiach. Like they relate to him as Mashiach. Like we said, I think it was last time or the time before, we spoke about like how the Rambam um, tell, teaches us to identify the Mashiach and says that Rabbi Akiva was right for supporting Bar Kochba because ultimately we're not meant to know who the Mashiach is before he finishes his job. We have an obligation to support anybody who looks like he can succeed. Anybody who seems to be fighting for the right goals and somebody who looks like he could potentially uh, actually win. He could make it work. So Menachem, the leader of the Sikari, is considered to be the Mashiach by his men. And uh, they consider him such and they lead him through Jerusalem as such. And ultimately he's brought to the Temple Mount in purple robes, declared Mashiach, king of the Jews. And um, his men are attacked. And ultimately he's found nearby and executed. Now who executes him? Elazar ben Hanania. Elazar ben Hanania is a very interesting character. He's a... He's the son of the Kohen Gadol. Right? His, son, his father is a Kohen Gadol. And for the most part at this time, the high priests are appointed by Rome and are connected to the regime. Right? There's a lot of corruption in the priesthood. And uh, Elazar ben Hanania, he's the son of the Kohen Gadol. He's also captain of the temple guards. At a certain point in his life, he's kidnapped by the Sikari and held for ransom. But um, while being kidnapped, while being held hostage by the Sikari, he adopts many of their ideas. And he essentially becomes a zealot. He doesn't become Sikari, but he becomes ideologically a zealot. And he's one of the initiators of the war against Rome. He initiates the war... Yeah. Not yet. Before that. He, the, first of all, a lot of these... He was connected to the Romans? No. His father was connected to the Romans. Both want to fight Rome. He was kidnapped by the Sikari. It's the leader of the Sikari, Menachem, who they, the Sikari believe is the Mashiach. He is the king of Am Yisrael, who's going to lead us uh, to victory over Rome. Now, the, now, Elazar ben Hanania adopts the ideas of the Sikari to a certain extent, even though he himself is a privileged member of the priesthood. Now, many of the lower class Kohanim, you have upper class Kohanim and lower class Kohanim, many of the lower class Kohanim are part of the Kanaim movement, the zealot, the zealot faction, like the zealot militia. The, the zealot militia itself is almost exclusively Kohanim. 
as opposed to the Sikari, for example, who are much more like uh, from the Galil or from like the rural areas. They're not like city people. Whereas the Kohanim are from Yushalayim, like the Kanaim are from Yushalayim, the, zealot, the Zealots are from Jerusalem. So, Elazar ben Hanani himself is connected to them probably, but he himself is part of the upper priesthood, he's part of the aristocracy. But he himself has these radical ideas and he stops. How the, one of the ways that the revolt, I mean, there's different things that happened that led to the revolt beginning. One of these things was Elazar ben Hanania stopping the daily sacrifice for Caesar's like welfare. Like every day they would bring a korban for like on behalf of Caesar, like for the well-being of the emperor, and he put a stop to this. He's like, we're not doing this. And that is one of the ways that the revolt started. Um, Menachem came in with the Sikari. They had ca- they conquered Masada. They were able to take a lot of weapons from Masada, uh, like siege weapons that uh, you know, like that they'd never really used before, and they were able to use those in Jerusalem. And they're fighting together against the Romans. But Menachem takes control of the city, executes Eleazar's father. And uh, like his, a lot, you know, meaning that Elazar feels like this guy's out of control. So they're together against the Romans, but they're not, you know, they, they don't all accept the same leadership. So Menachem, when he comes to the Temple Mount in his purple robes, as if purple is like the color of royalty. So when you come to the Temple Mount in purple robes, it's like you're being presented as the king. He's attacked by Elazar and his men by the uh, Kohanim and I guess uh, I, that's probably the Kanaim, although the Kanaim are officially led by a different Kohen named Elazar ben Shimon. They attack Menachem, they kill him. Um, the Sikari, the, the um, surviving members of the Sikari end up leaving Jerusalem and uh, returning to Masada. They're led by Menachem's nephew, Elazar ben Yair, and they stay at Masada throughout the rest of the war for the most part. Now, there's a young, there's a, a teenager named Shimon Bar Giora who attaches himself to the Sikari. Um, he's loosely considered Sikari himself. Like, I don't know if, like, if they initiated him, not initiated, like how much they consider him to be Sikari. But historians consider him to also be like part of the Sikari. Later, he'll raise an army. He'll leave Masada. He's like, uh, after, in the beginning, he's like, not really accepted by the Sikari. Eventually, he becomes one of them. They like accept him. And, uh, but like, after a while, he just gets tired of being a Masada. He believes we need to fight for Jerusalem. And they're all, you know, they feel burnt. Like they were you know, attacked by the other freedom fighters, meaning, you know, they're one faction attacked by the other faction. They don't really want to go back to Jerusalem or they don't, or not at that moment anyway. And Shimon Bargiora decides to raise an army of slaves and, uh, and just like poor people, like, uh, and they end up invading, coming to Jerusalem. Once Yochanan Migush Chalav takes over the zealot movement from, uh, Elazar ben Shimon, uh, the opponents, the internal opponents, who are what we'll consider like the moderates, who wanted to 
negotiate with Rome, some kind of eventual surrender, they invite Shimon Bargiora into the city, and what you end up having are two rival factions. You have basically the Zealot faction, led by um, Yochanan Migosh Chalav, Yochanan Ben Levi, and you have this, this like Sikari faction in Jerusalem, led by Shimon Bargiora, and they're fighting each other. And also at a certain point, the original Zealot movement, uh, led by Elazar ben Shimon, breaks off from Yochanan ben Levi, and you have three different factions fighting each other in the city until the Romans show up. And when the Romans show up, they're able to, for the most part, unite behind the leadership of Shimon bar Giora. Shimon bar Giora is recognized by the Romans at this point as leader of the revolt. And again, so a lot of the conflict, they didn't have ideological disagreements. Their disagreements were like, who is king of the Jews? Who is going to be king? Um, so, uh, essentially there was a machloket between Yochanan and Shimon, Shimon Bagior and Yochanan ben Levi, who is going to be, lead the revolution. Now in the end, once the Romans destroy Jerusalem, they capture both men, they capture Yochanan and Shimon, uh, and uh, Yochanan is imprisoned, and Shimon is paraded at the like victory parade in Rome, and ultimate and executed at the end of the parade. So it's clear that the Romans considered Shimon Bar Giora to be like the leader, like he was considered like leader of the Jewish uprising at the end when all is said and done. Now it's interesting, you know. I don't know how many of you have seen these like antique coins. The, there's different coins, you know. Essentially, the way political messages were communicated in this time period was through coinage, currency. Because you have to remember that all currencies were basically the same weights of the same metals. It wasn't like you had a Federal Reserve and like paper money that like in theory represents X amount of whatever. There was a coin. It was a certain weight of a certain metal. And you can theoretically go to any marketplace in Persia, in Rome, wherever. And you can pay for a, I don't know, pay for a camel, pay for a, a, a shirt, pay for whatever you're paying for in 18 different currencies. As long as the coins are the right weight or the right metal. So the way that nations would spread their political messages to the rest of the world were on coins. So when we started the revolt in the year 66, we declared our independence by minting coins um, that said, uh, we, we had different coins, different rebel factions, you know, minted different coins. So for example, uh, Yohanan ben Levi, his coin said, for the freedom of Zion. If you like uh, Psagot wine, if you ever drink Psagot wine, you'll see the wine has like a plastic coin in the bottle. Uh, that's actually the coin. Uh, it says on the side that you see, year two, time, but on the other side of that coin, it says for the freedom of Zion. So for four years, we're minting these coins. Year one, year two, year three, year four. And then in 70, the Romans destroy Jerusalem. And... They destroy a national framework, and then they mint a coin. They mint a coin that says uh, Judea Capta. And on the coin, you have a Roman soldier with a Jewish woman at his foot. Right? Judea Capta is like, uh, we, capture, we vanquished Judea. But then the 
Sikariat Masada, led by Elazar ben Yair, mint another coin that says year five. So meaning throughout the world, the international community has seen these Roman coins. After four years of seeing Jewish coins saying, we're free, we're free, we're free, we're free. Now they see a Roman coin saying, we beat the Jews. We put down the revolt. We captured them. And then right away after that, they see a new Jewish coin saying, no, we're still free. Year five. <laughs> it was just like another one of the, um, the original coins, Yushalayim HaKadosha. Year five. So because of this coin, the Romans have to come back to Masada and they have to lay siege to this mountain. You know, and that's a story unto itself, what happens at this mountain. But uh, it's all because of a coin, really. It's all because they, you know, insisted on saying to the world, we're still free. We don't accept the, the Roman position that they beat us. Even though they did. Meaning they did destroy Jerusalem, they did destroy the Beit HaMikdash, they did destroy our national framework. But on one mountain, a uh, little less than a thousand Jews still maintained we're free and decided to tell the world we're free. And I would say that, you know, what happened at Masada, the, the suicide, uh, first of all, definitely has precedent. We see Shaul Melech, you know, the first king of Israel, he takes his own life rather than be captured by the Philistines. And we know one should die rather than transgress very specific averot, right? Like sexual immorality, murder, and idolatry. Now, what happened to Jews who were captured by Rome? Like if they're captured alive by Rome, what happened to them? They would either become gladiators or prostitutes or slaves. So you should know in the first and second centuries, the majority of gladiators in the Roman Empire were Jewish. Most gladiators in the Roman Empire during the first and second centuries were Hebrew and often captured freedom fighters, like whether from the Great Revolt or the Bar Kokhba Revolt. So what does a gladiator have to do? A gladiator has to kill another gladiator for sport, right? So that the Romans in the Colosseum can be entertained. So if Elazar ben Yair has a choice between killing another Jew, letting himself be killed by that Jew, or taking his own life. There's a pretty solid halachic argument that he should take his own life. They should die rather than transgress. Same for the women on Masada who would have been forced into prostitution. And also for the children who in most cases would have been uh, brought up as slaves in idolatrous environments. Uh, but beyond like the halachic argument, should they, shouldn't, shouldn't have they, should they, should they not, um, there's like the argument of the message it sent. The message it sent to the Romans and the message it sent to our people and the message that echoed through Jewish history that inspired future freedom movements. Now remember that we're still talking about Elazar ben Yair, we're still talking about what happened at Masada 2,000 years later. And many of our freedom fighters in modern times were inspired, like even Yair Stern, Avraham Stern, he takes the name Yair after Elazar ben Yair. Meaning that what happened on that mountain echoed through history and inspired uh, future generations of freedom fighters to continue where they left off. So it's certainly a very powerful message. 
And I hope that wasn't too confusing, but I just wanted to go through some of the personalities involved in uh, the freedom movement in the Great Revolt Against Rome.